So our scripture reading today is Isaiah chapter 7. If y'all will, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I want to go ahead and apologize for mispronouncing probably half of these names also. It's God's joke on me from this morning. Okay. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Rimelay, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jasab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of reason in Syria, and the son of Remelah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remelah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the cliffs of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is haired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. The head and the hair of, his, of the feet, it will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, 
You will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'm sure that Ephraim and Remaliah will forgive you. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're continuing our series going through the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is really just one book. It's one five-fold book. The word Pentateuch means five-fold book. Um, I've, I've kind of mapped it out, and if there was no interruptions, we'll be getting done sometime in 2020. <laughs> But that'll be fun. It'll be fun. But again, that's still five books. So it's not like we're going to be just in Genesis till 2020. So come on. Give me a little bit of a break there. But no, I'm, I'm really excited about what God's going to do, uh, what we're going to learn about him and about his plan um, for our salvation and, uh, and all these things that we're going to learn in these, in these uh, books here. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 today. Um, you may have recognized this story. This is, this is not a, a fun story. This is uh, just about as, if not even a little bit more depressing than chapter 3. Um, and uh, so it's going to be some tough subject matter to deal with, um, but we will, we, will, we will approach it as, as God's word is, is given to us. When it comes to worship, we often find ourselves uncertain. Uh, I grew up in a fairly traditional, perhaps you might say musically blended church. Uh, we didn't have a band that played the latest Christian radio hits. Um, our piano player and very small orchestra focused mostly on hymns and maybe a praise song or two. Uh, when a new person came to, the, came to our church, that, that when they, during the music time, when they would you know, put their hands up and raise their hands, uh, we were often terrified. What is going on with that person? What happened? Um, who is that? What are they doing? Then, you know, sometimes in arrogance, we would be like, oh, well, they're just trying to get attention for themselves, right? Now, if that's not the case, that just happened to be the way that, that, that the things were when I was growing up, that we sometimes got that, got that way to think that they were just showing off. Well, that was, that was my church background growing up. When I came to the South for college, church was a lot different. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, I began to hear uh, the word worship associated with music. I never heard it in quite that same way to see that, that worship is mostly associated with music as, as it often is uh, in the South. Have you ever heard of the music genre, worship music? As if that music was in and of itself uh, worshipful, uh, by its definition. Well, in my young mind and maybe in yours this morning, I began to believe that worship meant music and meant a specific brand of music. So if I wanted to be obedient to the preacher who told me that I need to, I need to worship God all day long, what my mind thought that meant was I need to sing a certain type of songs all day long in my head, right? Yes, you can laugh at how stupid I was. Right? Hopefully you're, you're, you're not in that place today. But if you are, hold on and we'll see what God's word does say about this. 
this is a true story. In fact, it wasn't until I was taking a Christian ethics class with Dr. Lederbach at Southeastern and Seminary, um, while I was preparing to be a pastor, that I even really finally started to understand what worship really meant. This morning, our text describes and shows us the nature of true worship. Perhaps this morning you have struggled with understanding what worship means. Maybe it's this kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that you're not exactly sure what it is, but you kind of know it when you see it. Maybe you were as confused as I was. Maybe you associate worship purely with hand-raising or running around or speaking in tongues. Or maybe to you, worship is like, a quiet, like the quiet game, right? Where the quieter you are, the more you're worshiping. Um, did you know that God is very concerned with our worship? It's actually an important thing to God. Often we are tempted to think that worship is up to the worshiper, as if it is our choice. That worship at the end of the day is all about my preferences. This is what I worship best to. This is what you worship best to. And it's all just about preferences. But if that's the case, aren't we making worship ultimately about ourselves and our wants and desires? In fact, throughout Scripture, God gives dictates as to how we are and are not supposed to worship. He is very concerned that we worship, that he be worshipped correctly. If the triune God of the Bible, the only one worthy of worship, he, if he is truly the only one that is worthy of worship, shouldn't we seek to worship him on his terms, not on our terms? At the outset, I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. When I say that God gives commands about how he should be worshipped, I'm not referring to our common understandings of worship. His commands are not concerning hand-raising or drums in church or music styles, projectors and whether or not God would ever use a projector, or whether or not pastors should wear a tie. God's primary concern is with the heart and with the mind. So this morning from our passage, we will see several requirements for acceptable worship. And when we say acceptable worship, that means that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. Not every action of so-called worship is acceptable to God. Thus, every point this morning will also have its opposite of unacceptable worship. Let's begin uh, by reading our passage this morning and praying over, over the message. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And they, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, 
What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called his, the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujalel, uh, and Mahujael fathered Methuselel, and, uh, or Methuselel, Methu, anyway, Mike, you had it easier, <laughs> fathered uh, Methuselel, and Methuselel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. And the name of the one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adab or Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you understanding that worship matters to you. Understanding, Lord, that if you have given us instruction concerning the appropriate way to worship, that you are the one who deserves worship and thus we should listen. And I pray as we search through this passage, Lord, about Cain and his evil response toward you, pray, Lord, that we would be humbled. That, Lord, if we find ourselves in need of a Savior, that we would not respond as Cain did in rebellion, Lord, but we would respond to you in worship and in repentance. Pray us in your name. Amen. First this morning, we will see that acceptable worship requires humility. Acceptable worship requires humility. Uh, all of chapter 4 up until uh, about the end of verse 24 is mostly focused on Cain. Cain and his descendants, if you will, from verse 18 or verse 17 forward, it's Cain and his descendants. So really this narrative has this focus on Cain and looking at him. It starts with Eve and Cain's birth. This is actually really interesting. The whole, the whole narrative actually begins with pride. Look at what happens here. Adam knew his Eve, his wife, 
That's a way to say that they had a, a marital relationship and she had a baby, right? The whole question of where do babies come from? This is right here. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This phrase here that's, that's translated in, this, in, 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 my, in my Bible as I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, this phrase can actually also be translated, I have created a man equally with the Lord. In fact, that translation seems to make sense. What, what ends up going on then is that her statement here is a statement of pride that is then that it sets the tone for Cain's life and then is reversed at the end when Seth is born. So we, if we take it into that context, what happens here, remember, remember last week we saw, we saw the, the sin in the Garden of Eden and how pride, man's rebellion, man's desire for independence and his arrogance and pride led him into sin. Their desire to be like God. Here we find at the beginning of chapter four that even though Adam and Eve were punished, even though they were sent out of the Garden of Eden, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Eve has a child and essentially says, just like God created a man, I did too. Look how great I am. I can do what God did. She comes to this with arrogance. In fact, this sets, then sets the tone for Cain's entire life. Her response of pride reveals to us the nature of Cain's evil and it is indeed his own pride. His expression of pride in regards to Cain's birth sets the tone for his entire life and the life of his family. What we see here in these opening passages is that, is that there is an a, a act of worship that takes place. One is acceptable and one is not acceptable. Whereas Eve, if she was to give an acceptable offering, right? We saw this about the, you know, pride and dependence on God. Rather, she should have been like, God helped me and now I have a child. I mean, this is, this is something that God gave me. This is a gift from the Lord. But rather, she, she claims an arrogance that, that she has created. Acceptable worship, on the other hand, requires humility. Now think, of, think of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The prayer starts by exalting God, not ourselves. It says, God, you are holy. You are worthy. Then the prayer relies on God. You give us this day our daily bread. Lord, not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer submits to God's will, not our own will. The prayer doesn't say, hey, God, I've got these plans. Can you make sure they work out? Right? I really want to be a millionaire. Can you, can you help me get there? No, it says, God, whatever your will is for my life, that's what I want. It submits to him. True worship is all about humility. There's not room for pride and arrogance in acceptable worship. If, if your worship is to be accepted by the Lord, there is no room for pride and arrogance. So what do we mean when we say humble worship? I think the text draws out four requirements for humble worship. What does humble worship look like? What is required if there is to be humble worship? The first two actually line up with Jesus' teaching that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. 
We will also see that humble worship require. we will see then these four points that humble worship requires a proper attitude. Humble worship requires accurate belief. Humble worship requires obedient submission and humble worship requires accountability. That these four things are, are found in this passage. So first of all, we'll see in kind of the, the, the biggest point where we're going to spend most time on is this first point that humble worship requires a proper attitude. Humble worship requires a proper attitude. So acceptable worship requires humility, and humble worship requires a proper attitude. Throughout the chapter, Cain and his descendants reveal a terrifyingly prideful attitude. In fact, Cain's attitude is the primary focus of the text. So we will take our time here. Cain is portrayed as an unrepentant unbeliever. Not once does Cain show remorse for his sin. Not once does Cain take responsibility for his sin. But his pride reveals itself at the very outset in his act of worship. What he does here shows his own pride. In this chapter, we see the very first sacrifices or the very first acts of worship. We have... Uh, there's a first. There's a comparison that is made. We find out that that Cain is a worker of the field, and Abel is a herdsman, and both of them bring uh, bring uh, bring sacrifices that are part of their trade. There, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing overtly wrong with that. The text doesn't seem to think so. At least the text doesn't seem to indicate that there was anything wrong with what they brought. Right? That the fact that that Cain brought maybe brought vegetables or grain for his offering was not itself evil. So what, what, what's, what's going on? Why doesn't God take Cain's sacrifice? Why does he accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Then we come here and we see a contrast. First, let's take a look at Abel's sacrifice. Let's look at how the scriptures describe Abel's sacrifice. Verse four says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And that's how it describes Abel's sacrifice. He brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, the, the, this, is, this is telling of what was going on here. So he brought the firstborn of his flock. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2 and 15, and Leviticus verse, chapter 27 and verse 26, it is over and over again said that the first fruits belong to the Lord, that the firstborn belongs to the Lord. That's the best. The top, the first one, the first uh, cow born to mama cow is the one that needs to be sacrificed. The firstborn, the best one. It also describes his sacrifice as being the fat portions of the sacrifice. This is, uh, this is always a positive indication for sacrifices. In Exodus 29 verse 13 and, and several other passages, it talks about that, we bring to the, the, that the people were to bring to the Lord the fat portions. This, the best of the best. The healthiest cow. Now, those of you who have maybe ranched before or raised cattle, right, this would be saying, my very best cow, the one that brings me the most money, that's the one that Abel said, that's the one I'm going to give to the Lord. The one that's most valuable to me, the best that I have, that's what I'm giving to the Lord. But let's contrast that for a second. So Abel then gives his absolute best. But what about Cain? How is Cain's offering described? It says that Cain was a worker of the ground, and in verse 3, in the, case, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Okay? So what, what, maybe, what indications is there of this contrast between him and his brother's 
uh, his brother's um, uh, offering. First of all, it's described, well, the, its only main description is it's the fruit of the ground. Okay? Now, in the, in the narrative, the ground is at this time associated with the curse. Right? When God curses Adam, he says, the ground is now cursed because of you. Right? And then before that, in the Garden of Eden, where does fruit come from? The trees. Right? Not from the ground, but from the trees. So he takes the fruit of the ground. This is, the, the, the text is trying to draw this out, that this is not a good thing that he's doing here. This is not a positive thing. Further, it doesn't describe it as his first fruits either. Just his fruits. Not the first fruits of the ground, but just the fruits. Later, God would command that the first fruits would be given, even of produce. The first fruits of their produce would be given. Abraham Curavilla summarizes Abel appears to have taken pains to give the best. Cain, on the other hand, appears to have been rather indifferent, simply discharging a duty. Oh, I've got to give some fruit, you know, okay, here's some, here's some stuff. Right? Yeah, this was sitting in my stack here. I'm just going to give that. One engages, he continues, in heartfelt worship. That is, Abel engages in heartfelt worship. The other, Cain, conducts an unacceptable tokenism. Here's something for you, Lord. Here's an attaboy for you, God. What happens? God rejects Cain's sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice. Verse 5 says, Cain and his, For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain's attitude then continues to stink. Not only does he say, does he kind of half-heartedly give his worship, just kind of like, hey, whatever, here's some stuff. Take it, Lord. That's all, that's what I've got for you. I don't really don't want to work any extra for this. But then his attitude continues to stink. He sees the blessing that God gave his brother and says, well, how come I didn't get blessed? Right, where, where's mine? I, I gave something too. Where's mine? we have that attitude sometimes. How can you bless them and not me? Cain's attitude continues to to stink. He gets frustrated that God would bless Abel and not him, and we face the exact same temptation. God then gives him a warning. He gives him a warning of where his prideful response will take him. He says that, he says, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Uh, and then verse seven, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God warns that his prideful, where his prideful response will take him. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It's actually possible that this is actually, that the, this, this word for door is actually uh, uh, drawing out this connotation of there being a demon involved. In other words, there's a possibility that demonic involvement is, is, is taking place here. What God is maybe saying is that sin is a crouching demon. That there are spiritual forces at work here that are trying to stop you from glorifying the Lord. What are you going to do? Are you going to take responsibility for it or not? Are you going to avoid it? Are you going to take, uh, stay away or not? Either way, Cain is told that he has a choice. Look at what he says. He says, he, he tells him, it's crouching at the door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. Cain is responsible for his sin. 
this phrasing here is actually reminiscent of exactly what God told Eve. When God gave the curse on Eve, what he told her, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And here God reminds, or reminds Cain of the very curse of the first sin and says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That, that would ring in his mind as he probably had heard his parents tell that story a hundred times. It would ring in his mind. He'd say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't go down this path. But what does he do instead? Out of pride and anger, he kills his brother. Over and over, the text shows and, and, and continues to remind us of the brother relationship. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, he rose up against his brother, Abel, brother Abel, and killed him. Then, Cain, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Over and over again, we are not allowed to forget that they are blood relatives, that they are brothers. This heinous act of sin is against his own flesh and blood. He commits the very first murder, the very first fratricide. His stinky attitude not only brings destruction on himself, but also brings destruction on his family. Then verse 9. Uh, verse 9, when God, God tells him this, uh, then, then you know, he asks him where his brother is. And how did, look how Cain responds. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? He denies that the murder even took place. God is like, hey, where's your brother? And he says, I, I don't know. Where is he? I, I'm not in charge of him. Right? That, that's not my responsibility. Right? He completely denies that he knows anything about the murder. And essentially then, if you want to read subtext here, what is he saying? God, you're the one that blessed him. Aren't you supposed to be looking out for him? God, I thought that was your responsibility. That's not mine. Not only does he deny the murder, but he accuses God of not protecting him like he, sh- like he thought he should have. Then verses 10 through 12 and verse 16, we find out Cain's punishment. This murder takes place and then God meets out punishment on him. He says that the ground is going to be cursed because, you know, we, well, we found out, we, we, we had heard in the last chapter that the ground was cursed because of man's sin. And now God tells Cain, the ground is going to be, or is going to curse you. What once was an object of the curse now becomes the one who does the cursing. The ground is not going to give you its, its best. The ground's not going to give you anything. You're a farmer and your job's gone. The ground's not going to give you what you need. And furthermore, in verse 16, we find out that he is banished from, from, his, from where he was leaving. He is, from where he was living, he had to move and live further east. Right? We saw last week that this movement east from Eden is further away from the presence of God. And God says, you have to get out of my presence. You have to get further away from me. I can't do this. He went away from the presence of the Lord because of his own pride and arrogance. Cain then responds in verses 13 and 14. He sees this. God tells him, this is what's going to happen. Now again, think about this. He just murdered his brother. Isn't God just to do this? This is the right thing to do. He deserves every single bit of his punishment. Of course it's not too harsh. But look how Cain responds. My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
God, you're not a good judge. You're, you're being too hard on me, right? Like when you ground your kids and they say, well, that's not fair. That's what Cain is doing here. Cain, here's the punishment. You killed your brother. This is what's going on. That's not fair. You're a terrible judge. You don't know what you're talking about. Thank you, Ruby, for laughing. <laughs> Somebody's getting it, right? He accuses God of being wrong about the punishment that he rightly deserves. And don't we do the same thing? In our minds, I mean, in our culture, God would never send people to hell. God would never do that. He's too, he doesn't do that kind of stuff. Right? If, he, if God sent people to an eternity in hell, that would be just really mean. Who are we to accuse God of being unjust in the punishment that he gives for the sin that we deserve, for the punishments we deserve? But here, look at this. This is, this is what abs is absolutely fascinating. God has cursed him, right? And then he says, this is too much for me, God. I can't do it. Somebody's going to kill me. And God says, no, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let anybody kill you. Even still, God still offers him protection. He has continued to be prideful, arrogant, rebellious against the Lord. And God says, I'm still going to take care of you. I'm still going to provide for you. In fact, what we see in the, in the, in the following section, uh, verses 17 and 18, uh, in verse 17, excuse me, what happens when he leaves, when he goes out, he goes and builds a city. What this actually is doing, what the text is actually doing, what Moses is, is doing with this as well, is he is pointing forward to when God would provide cities of refuge for murderers. If you had murdered somebody and you were afraid of having vengeance, you could run to a city of refuge and, and you would be protected there. Here, God provides a city of refuge for Cain. He didn't deserve that. He deserved to have vengeance meted out on him. But God makes an all, another interesting claim here. He says that um, uh, uh, vengeance shall, uh, it says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, verse 15, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That's a passive, that's a passive verb there. That's a passive idea going on here. In other words, vengeance will be done on them. Who by? God. God starts here, what he will say later, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is not up to you or up to him, right? God says he will take care of vengeance. We'll hold on to that thought here for just a minute. We'll get back to this. Second thing we see here is that humble worship requires accurate beliefs. So humble worship requires a proper attitude, one of humility, one that is not prideful. And humble worship also requires accurate beliefs. When we think of worship, we often think of acts of worship. But clearly that's not the case. Cain had a worship action, did he not? He brought, he brought something to the Lord. It was with a terrible attitude, but he still brought something to the Lord. Those were, it was a completely un, unacceptable worship action. On the other hand, we may be tempted to think that worship is just an attitude. Well, if I came and I was happy and I sang this song, and then, then I'm good, right? But remember Jesus' words, those who worship will worship him in spirit and truth. Christian singer Shai Lin explains that we must have both theology and doxology. Doxology is an expression of praise, and theology is what you believe about God. He explains that if we praise without an accurate understanding of God, what we end up with is idolatry. 
because our praise is just a random expression without any clear object of that praise. So let me explain. If I sing a song about how great God is, man, God is so wonderful, God is so great, but I don't believe that God is Trinity. I reject that idea. Am I worshiping God in an, in an acceptable way? Absolutely not. Because I'm praising a God that does not exist. Thus, we see that true, acceptable, humble worship requires accurate beliefs as well. Cain, by his attitude, reveals that he did not accurately understand God. He does not offer God his best produce, thinking, hey, God doesn't really care about my offering. He's not really that concerned about it. It doesn't matter to him. He gets angry at God for blessing Abel, showing that he thinks God's standard is unfair. He lies about the murder, thinking that God doesn't know. He complains about God's punishment, accusing God of being unjust. At every turn, he blames God for all of his problems. He clearly has no idea who God is. Even though he's spoken to God, he still has no idea of who he is. We have the same lazy attitude in connection, in connection uh, in connecting our worship with accurate beliefs. In our culture, we try to disconnect belief from worship as if God is unconcerned about what God you worship and only concerned with that you worship. Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Christians, who cares, right? Um, God is Trinity, God is not Trinity, God is distant, God is near, God is angry, God is passive. God doesn't really care at the end of the day what we believe as long as we're just nice people. It's wrong. Such an understanding is absolutely wrong. In our churches, we try to do the same. We try to disconnect belief from worship as if God is unconcerned about what we believe about and how we practice baptism or what we believe about Jesus, or what we believe about God's word. And we just all worship together. It doesn't matter what we think about those things. We'll just worship anyway. Such thinking is absolutely wrong. God is not only concerned with whether or not you express praise to him, but he is also concerned with an accurate understanding of him. The third, the third requirement of humble worship is that humble worship requires obedient submission. When confronted with his sinful heart and with his act, sinful acts, Cain refused to submit to the Lord. God warned him that he must resist the temptation to sin, but he refused to resist that temptation. He is confronted with murder and called to repent, but still he refuses to repent. The humble worshiper, on the other hand, will, see, will submit and repent. When we are confronted with our rotten, prideful attitude, the humble worshiper responds, in repentance, and submits to God's word. How can you tell the difference between true worship and false? Repentance and submission. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You don't need to turn there. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. How do you know if someone's worship is true or not? Are they repentant? Are they submissive to God's word? If you are truly a Christian, your life will be marked 
by repentance and submission to the Lord. On the contrary, if you are living in unrepentant sin, or if you refuse to submit to God's word, you are in grave danger. Instead, humble yourself, repent, and submit to God. The fourth aspect of humble worship that we see in this passage today is that humble worship requires accountability. Cain here refused personal accountability. At every turn, he blames God for his troubles. But another aspect of Cain's rebellion is striking. Not only does he refuse to be personally accountable, but in verse 9, he asks a question of God. He says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. Not only does he deny responsibility for his sin, but as Alan Ross explains, he also repudiates responsibility for his brother. What happens to him is of no concern to me. It's not my problem. Later, the people of Israel were commanded to be one another's keepers in the covenant. They were supposed to hold each other accountable. And then, and they were also told that they were not, that they, and, and because of that, they dared not kill their own brother. But here, Cain rejects that responsibility. His answer to his question should be, yes, I am my brother's keeper. After all, if the nation or family is to survive, the people must be responsible for the well-being of another. It is interesting then that in the New Testament, one of the reasons God establishes the church is for mutual accountability. Like Israel and like Cain, we are supposed to hold each other accountable. We are commanded to do so. That's part of humble worship. Right? If I'm, if I'm by myself, if I have no one telling me where I'm messing up or where I'm doing something wrong, my pride is going to say I'm just fine. But if I'm living in community with others, that gives other people the opportunity to say, hey man, this is not right in your life. And if I'm humbly worshiping the Lord, I can take that and say, you're right. And I need to repent. On my own, I will have great difficulty to recognize all my faults and all of my sin. That's one of the beautiful things about marriage, right? Before you're married, you think you're perfect. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm great, right? I'm ready to be a husband. She's going to be so blessed to have me, right? Then you get married and you find out just how flawed you are. It's the same thing in a church. On our own, we'll think, I'm a great Christian. I never do anything wrong. I'm a, I never sin. Until you get around other people who are just as sinful as you are, and you find out, wow, I've got a lot to go. Just as a nation or family cannot survive without accountability, neither can a church. A church that does not love one another and hold each other accountable cannot survive. Such a church that kind of a church that does not hold each other accountable will die. The church is not just a social club for people to come and hang out. It's an embassy for the kingdom of God where God's people worship the Lord, love one another, and hold one another accountable, and so much more. Accountability then is required of those who humbly worship the Lord. Continuing forward then in, in the narrative, we get to Cain and his family. We see what ends, up, what ends up taking place here is that Cain's sin leads his family into a crazy downward spiral. Eventually in Genesis 6, Cain's entire line will be wiped out in the flood. There are no descendants of Cain left on this planet. None. They were destroyed a long, 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 long time ago. 
Notice the same features of Cain's sin in his, in his great, 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 I think it was five greats, I think. I counted it earlier this morning and I forgot. I think it's five greats, grandson, Lamech. Look at, look at here uh, in, uh, in verse 23. It starts to, well, it started talking about Lamech and they were building this uh, city and on all this stuff. And look what, look what happens to Lamech here. Lamech said to his wives, this is actually, we, you know, this is not just him like telling his wives what he did. This is a boast, right? This is the guy that like goes up in front of the ladies and he's like, hey ladies, check out all the stuff that I just did. Let me tell you about my sports scores from high school, you know? Let me tell you about the great things that I'm doing. Look at what he does here. He grabs his two wives. Which, by the way, quick, quick note here. Notice how quickly God's plan for marriage deteriorates. It's only a few short generations that Lamech takes on two wives. Completely destroying the fabric of what marriage was meant to be. A one flesh union between one man and one wife for life. It's already destroyed right here in, the, in, in this early when, when Lamech takes on two wives. He says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me. All right, think about this. Think about the ridiculousness of this. This guy punched me in the face. I killed him. This guy stepped on my toe. I killed that guy, right? He's dead. How awesome am I? Right, maybe this guy was some kind of a young warrior. He uses this term young man, which could be young man or child. Um, we don't really know. It's probably like a young guy, probably got in his 20s or something like that, you know, or a teenager, you know, you know, ended up wounding him or something like that. And he's like, okay, I'll take your life then, right? Something to that effect. But he says, I, kill, I, uh, I killed a, a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, which is what God told him, I will ven- have vengeance on them sevenfold. He said, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, mine is 77-fold. My punishment's way worse. What? You're bragging about the curse? Are you serious, Lamech? Right? This is an, it's absolute nonsense taking place here. You have Cain's line descends in this horrible spiral. Another thing we want to, we, want, we mention here, uh, if you notice Cain's line, he builds a city, and you notice as, as people are born, that what, did, what to help starts developing, right? There's people that are doing musical instruments, people that are doing metallurgy, people that are doing different things. Culture is forming. Advancement of society is taking place. But in the midst of this, culture, cultural advancement, comforts that the world is starting to offer, does not produce acceptable worship. All the comforts in the world all of the best things in the world are not going to produce successful worship. In fact, in this particular case, it just led to more and more sin. We come to our second main point about acceptable worship. First of all, we saw that acceptable worship is humble worship, and we described what humble worship is. And finally, and this will be brief, acceptable worship requires a substitute. This is, this is beautiful. After all this is going on, this horribly depressing chapter, look at how it ends. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, and notice her attitude change, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. This is a gift from God. God has provided hope. She uses this phrase where she talks about the off, another offspring, referring back to Genesis 3.15, where it says the seed of a woman, the offspring of a woman will crush the serpent's head. Notice another thing that she sees, that she mentions here, that this, 
this son, Seth, does not replace Cain. In her mind, Cain was never the promised seed, right? Cain was the prideful, arrogant one. He was never the promised seed. Instead, Seth replaces Abel, who was the promised seed. In fact, this is actually, what's actually really interesting here is that this actually sets the tone for the rest of Genesis. In Genesis, we find out who is the promised seed, who are we looking for? Naturally, we would expect to see the firstborn son. That's going to be the guy we need to look at. But every single time, it's always the younger son. Every time. Every time, the blessing always comes through the younger son. And we'll see that and unpack that as we walk through Genesis. But another thing we see in verse 26 says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right at the end of this chapter, we have a glimmer of hope. At this time, people began to worship the Lord. So as they called upon the name of the Lord, this word call upon is the word proclaim. They started declaring who God is. They started proclaiming who God is to others and sharing that. Seth's birth birth brings hope. The seed is now replaced. He's a substitute for Abel. Matthew and Luke's genealogies take up on the same exact thing. When they describe the genealogies, what do we find comes from the line of Seth? Jesus Christ. Just as Seth was a substitute for Abel, so Christ is our substitute. See, Cain, Cain could not save himself. There was nothing he could do Right? God told him to have mastery over his sin. Could he do that? He could have chosen to do that, but he obviously failed at that. God tells us that we could have mastery over our sin too, but can we do it? Probably not. We need a substitute. So God sent his only son into the world to be that substitute because he knew that me and you could not save ourselves. Nothing we could do to fi- could fix our sin. Only Christ could do that. Acceptable worship requires a substitute, and that substitute is Jesus Christ. Acceptable worship then cannot happen on our own. You cannot give worship that glorifies the Lord on your own strength. We need Jesus. So we ask ourselves then, what is worship? What is worship? Well, generally speaking, worship is giving ulti- making something ultimate, right? Giving something glory. We all worship something. Every one of us worships something. If you don't worship Jesus, maybe you worship money, or you worship cars, or you worship fine, or you worship security, or you worship comfort, or you worship whatever. We all make things ultimate that are not supposed to be ultimate. Just say, it's the same thing that was going on in Adam and Eve's sin. They took something that God had created for our good and made that thing ultimate and worshiped that instead of the creator, as Romans 1 tells us. We worship creation rather than creator. We all worship. Our hearts are factories of worship, constantly trying to find something to worship. More often than not, our evil, wicked hearts, as Jeremiah tells us, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Our deceitful, wicked hearts pour forth idolatry and we seek to worship idols above everything else. If we were to look today at what we saw today, if we were to pack this into maybe a couple of sentences, 
You might say this about what, what biblical worship is. Biblical worship is glorifying the Father through Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit with a humble heart in, informed by accurate biblical teaching with repentance and submission to the Lord and held in check through biblical accountability in a local church. Such worship is expressed in obedience to God and his word, uh, in, in his word every day and with his people. So let me ask you today, is your worship acceptable or unacceptable? Is your worship acceptable or unacceptable? If your worship is apart from Christ, it already starts on the wrong foot. If you come to worship in pride or without submission and repentance or without a biblical understanding of who God is, my friend, we're in danger of giving unacceptable worship. How will you respond today? Will you repent? If you're not a believer today, will you give your life to Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for these people, for us, for me. Lord, again, I'm a man of unclean lips. We are all people of unclean lips. On our own, we cannot offer an acceptable sacrifice, but Lord, because of you and because of what you have done for us, we can be accepted in your sight. We thank you for that beautiful truth. And I pray for everyone in this congregation. I pray, Lord, that we would give acceptable worship, that when we gather together on Sundays, when we are sitting with our families and eating, when we are going at the grocery store and picking out food, Lord, every single action that we take would be an act of worship, seeking to glorify you first and foremost. Lord, when we come together in worship, I pray that you would help us to remember that the action of being here is not enough. That, Lord, you call us to know you rightly, to trust you rightly, to come in humility. I pray you give that to us. You would help us to do that through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Praise in your name. Amen.